You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at SHF, that's Sustainable Homes of the Future, shfbuild.com. Visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. This is Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, uh, the podcast where we explore uh, innovations in the built environment, the human environment, the technological environment, and beyond. Um, today, I am lucky enough to be joined by John Semelhack. Uh, John, bring up your picture there. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be here. Um, John is the owner of Think a Little, as well as the co-owner of Comparetto Comfort Solutions. Um, he is a certified passive house consultant, um, as well as a HERS Raider. Um, John, interesting kickoff here. What's HERS? What is that? HERS. Mean? Well, it depends on if. Know. Yeah, it depends on if you're in California or the rest of the country, because <laughs> right. it's different. It's a bit different. But HERS is a home energy rating system. I'm in Virginia, so I am a ResNet HERS Raider, which is different than a California HERS Raider. That's um, right. But uh, so we uh, do energy modeling and uh, inspections and diagnostic testing that goes into uh, a comparative uh, energy score uh, that's called a HERS score that compares uh, a, an actual uh, home's uh, projected energy use using a bunch of standardized assumptions uh, to a, a reference home that's uh, built to the building codes. Obviously, we are both uh, coming to you today from, from home. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming from my parents' home. but uh, I'm actually in an office, but uh, I just oh, nice. somebody uh, stopping by to pick up a paycheck. <laughs> no worries. I, I did a podcast once where uh, somebody stopped by my interviewee and dropped off a peach. So we've had, we've had all kinds of fun stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Well, it's Friday. I wish somebody would drop off a pizza for me. (laughs) That would be nice indeed. Um, So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, home energy scores, Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is that it kind of goes zero to a hundred. And a hundred is like, you know, the code from 20 years ago and zero is where we get net zero sort of from. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, this, the, for ResNet, HERS ratings, a score of 100 is kind of the, is uh, uh, equal in energy efficiency to the reference home. The reference home uh, these days is 
based off of the 2009 IECC, I think. So uh, it's almost 10 years. Yeah, 11 years old. But the 2009 IECC is, uh, you know, well behind where California was for the California listeners. So maybe it's more like 20 years. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so if, uh, uh, so each uh, one point below uh, the score of 100 is approximately 1% uh, improvement in energy efficiency. So a score of 50, you use approximately 50% less energy than that reference home. Uh, and that reference home, it's, you know, it's a theoretical house, but it's uh, modeled in the same size and shape uh, as the, the actual house that's built, uh, just with different specifications for insulation and air tightness and windows and so on. And, mechanical equipment. Uh, score of 100 is a, uh, you know, it's a theoretical estimate of a net zero homes. Uh, so a home that over the course of the year produces as much energy as it uses. And then in the resident hurls world, world, you can have negative scores as well. So, so houses that are net positive or produce, projected to produce uh, more energy than they uh, use in the real life. Um, so it's like it's important. A little bit. Yeah, lower, you want to be better. under par. Right. And, and it's also a little bit like uh, miles per gallon ratings. Uh, your mileage will vary. Uh, so, <laughs> in, so these are, you know, these are based on average, uh, you know, uh, standardized set points, standardized amounts of hot water use and uh, occupant behavior in terms of leaving lights on and things that are plugged in like computers and other devices. So we see, you know, a pretty big swing in terms of actual energy use. Right. Uh, you know, we have some households that are uh, very conservative in their energy use and some that use a whole bunch of energy. And then you have a lot of variances um, like this year, um, lots of people spending lots more time at home mm -hmm. uh, and using a lot more energy. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for running us through that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so how does that really play into, you know, we, we mentioned you're also a, a passive house consultant mm -hmm. um, and designer as well? No, I mean, is that uh, FIAS passive house consultant. Uh, okay. Passive house designer is a uh, PHI designation, international designation. So no, I'm not that one. Just cool. the uh, FIAS passive house consultant. Awesome. So, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about here with, with Passive House as well as the, the ResNet HERS rating is based on energy modeling. So mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes in on the front end um, to, you know, how to design the building or, or at least if you have a design already, maybe how to maximize the existing design. Where do you normally come in in the process? Um, and how do you work with, you know, hand in hand with, with the architect to uh, and engineers, I guess, to sort of uh, maximize efficiency. You know, we, yeah, that varies a lot from project yeah. to project since we're not the, the architects, we're not you know, designing the houses. Uh, we are often designing HVAC systems, uh, but uh, we don't always uh, get brought into a project you know, early enough. Uh, yeah. you know, in an ideal world, we come in when it's uh, still kind of a blank sheet of paper. Um, my, uh, you know, one of the very best projects I worked on almost 10 years ago, uh, the client who's our very best builder, uh, Promethean Homes, uh, 
he came to me with uh, an idea for his own family house before mm -hmm. he launched his business. And it was uh, just some basic numbers on a piece of paper. And so we actually, before he designed it, we started uh, doing some energy modeling with just a rough shape and rough, um, uh, you know, dimensions and window areas on the different orientations. Uh, and we were able to do some energy modeling and really sent him, you know, down you know, in the right direction uh, as he started to, you know, design the house. And then we refined the energy model from there. Um, other projects I get brought in, you know, when, you know, things are already under construction sometimes. <laughs> and we, you know, it, so, it, you know, it depends on, uh, you know, it, ju it just really varies from project to project. And so we, you know, we sometimes have to, you know, make the best that we can with what we're, you know, with what we're uh, working with or, you know, what we're presented with from the get-go. But certainly I like uh, working earlier, you know, collaboratively with, uh, with the owner, designer, builder, project team. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we do and, and, and what we talk about on the podcast is the idea of integrative design. Um, and obviously you can't really truly have integrative design unless you're bringing all of the, the various uh, design and energy participants um, as early on in the process as possible. Right. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that and just sort of the overall principles of, of mm -hmm. passive design, but I'm curious, um, you know, let's say somebody brings you in on, uh, you know, pretty far along when the construction's already happened. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned HVAC design, and that's obviously something that, that you could, uh, you could help to, to nuance, I suppose. Um, right. But what are some of the other things? I mean, let's say, <laughs> let's say the, the house is uh, facing north. <laughs> What, you know, some of the, one of the principles of passive, passive house design is solar heat gain and, and uh, maximizing, you know, the, the sun's energy. Um, so let's say it's facing the complete opposite direction, you know, do you say, no, I, I won't do that project. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, we work, we work on all kinds of different projects and uh, I think we can provide value to, you know, to every building that we touch. Uh, so, you know, we're, it's never, it's never too late to make an improvement. Uh, so definitely. Uh, so yeah, we work on all kinds of different projects and uh, we, you know, we have to, you know, meet our clients where they are in terms of their, uh, their performance goals and their budget and things like that. And, and just their, and their timeline, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and just the, you know, when we happen to be brought into the conversation. Yeah. Okay, so that that out of the way, you're brought in at the beginning. What's the what's the first thing that you're looking at, or the first top three things maybe that you're looking at? If if it's you know blank slate, mm -hmm. uh, somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, I want a house that's super efficient and doesn't use a lot of energy, or maybe even produces energy." Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are you what are you looking at first? Yeah, so we um, you know with clients we're you know. We're not the aesthetic decision makers, so we we talk about you know the numbers, the real performance. So we want um, you know in terms of standard construction, we want a simple shape, a boxy shape, uh, with uh, you know where we are with most of. Well, let's see. Uh, I will give clients uh, window area budgets. I'll tell mm -hmm. them. 
Uh, and I'll usually lowball it too because they'll because I know that they're going to push it over my limit. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell them, you know, depending on how big the house is, I might tell them, uh, you know, your window budget is 15% of your floor area and put half of the window area or your glazing area, if you've got glass doors, put half of that glazing area on the south uh, and then do what you want with the other half of it. Uh, that's kind of okay. that's the that's the initial you know stuff and we can refine it from there but if uh if you do that you're and you get half of the window area on the south uh you're going to be uh in good shape then we know you know you're not going to be overglazed on the east and west uh the windows on the south are much easier to shade than windows on the east and west uh, and then if you're limiting it to 15% of the floor area, we know it's not going to be, you know, overly glazed from a, from an energy standpoint. Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with, uh, like earthship design at all? Um, a little bit. Yeah. Like, uh, you, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not sure about all of the principles, but I mean, we're talking about like, uh, partially buried construction. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting how that works because, we talked a little bit about, you know, when we first met ab about the idea that passive house may not be, in fact, the best <laughs> um, terminology for this design principle. Sure, um, sure. It came from Germany. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, but, you know, I, I talked to uh, somebody on the podcast who was an interior designer um, and she had gone and looked at, you know, earthships and that clearly is like w way out there because you yeah as you said you're, you're creating a berm wall and mm -hmm. um you're, you're basically half burying the structure right um, but one of the things they do is they actually completely glaze the southern exposure mm -hmm. on that and, and and truly and then they also bury um they bury a pipe uh to you know in the ground to help airflow um, you know, to help cool air when it comes through the pipe. Um, and then you've got cool air coming into your house. So, you know, in the sense of, as I look up the term passive, it would uh, seem to be in opposition with having any mechanical systems <laughs> at all. Uh, however, we know, you and I both know that that's very rare. Um, and, and, and really those, the earthship design, I have heard of it as being in Montana, I think, but most of them are going to be in Arizona and New Mexico because of the particular climate zone. So, you know, I'm curious how maybe the application of, of passive house, you talk a little bit about just that and sort of the idea of passive versus mechanical, but then also, you know, how in your climate specifically in Charlottesville, you know, how are you able to maximize um, the climate that you're given and sort of the natural assets and and at least minimize the mechanical systems as much as possible. Right, yeah, and I think that's, you know, where, you know, the name passive house comes from, or the intent is to really focus first on the passive elements of the building. So the, uh, you know, the long-term infrastructure that's going to be around for 50 plus years mm -hmm. uh, and make sure you get that right and really optimize that performance. Uh, for, you know, cent central Virginia, you know, we do want some heat gain in the wintertime. We get cold. Our design temperature here is uh, just a little bit under 20 degrees Fahrenheit in the wintertime. Uh, but we're certainly hot and humid in the summertime. Uh, we had uh, several days over 100 degrees this year. We have, uh, you know, 
this summer, you know, we had dew point temperatures in the low 70s uh, most of the summer, which is pretty wet. It's not like Gulf Coast wet, but yeah. uh, but it's still, it's pretty wet. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, I guess in terms of um, uh, heat loss and heat gain, uh, we want, we still want lots of insulation, but our winters are not super long or super severe compared to other parts of the country. So just from a, you know, cost benefit analysis where, you know, our target, our values for a single family house aren't going to be as high as you're going to see for, you know, compared to a project in, you know, the far Northeast or in Minnesota or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, certainly from a window glazing selection, we're, you, on single family houses, we're usually trying to optimize our solar heat gain coefficient for best year round performance. So we kind of have to have, you know, some trade-offs between the winter and the summer. Uh, you know, in an ideal world, we could have a high solar heat gain coefficient in the winter and then change it up and have it lower in the summer without impacting, you know, views and daylight. Um, <laughs> But in the residential world, we don't really have that technology right now. <laughs> and that's why, uh, to be clear, that, that's why you have such a specific recommendation when it comes to the percent of glazing to floor area, correct? Because, uh, you know, you, 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 have to, you have to find that middle ground to some degree. Yeah, yeah. And I think letting it, in too much, but you're not right. letting out too much either. Right. And I think, you know, that percentage uh, when, you know, you put that in the hands of a good designer, I think you can still get, uh, unless there are some really specific views. But if you're, if you're dealing with a city lot that has, you know, good orientation, uh, you can have, you know, good views and good daylighting uh, with those percentages. You don't have to go to 25% or 30%, you know, window to floor area ratio. Um, and if you, you know, if you do, uh, then you start having to, if you want to, hit passive house performance numbers, then you start having to kind of overcompensate uh, elsewhere in the, uh, in the building enclosure package. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's cool. I was looking at the website and the, the was it the Bowern house? Am I, yes, yeah. The, so that's the house I was talking about before. Oh, yeah. was it? Cool. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I loved that. I mean, it's gorgeous barn looking structure um, and, and what I thought was interesting is that you got it to 34 hers rating um, and didn't have any, or at least at the time they didn't have any uh, PV or any, any solar panels yeah, on it, that's right. um, yep. which is pretty incredible. And, and what I think is really cool is that that's um, illustrating the, the entire goal of passive house, which, which really is to bring that efficiency down use as little energy as possible first and really do a lot of that front end work in the modeling and in the orientation and the design yep. to then allow you to, you know, you can just put, you know, a couple panels on top. You don't need to, <laughs> you know, build the entire structure out of solar panels or, you know, do the, the sort of retrofit idea that a lot of people have, which is, oh, I want to be energy efficient. I'm just going to put 25 solar panels on top of my house you know, to make up for the energy that I'm, that I'm using. Well, that's not really an efficient use of the idea of photovoltaics at all. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, 
what you do when you're going into a retrofit and how you can, um, how you can, like, can you design passive house when you're going in after the fact to a retrofit? Uh, you, you, you can, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, you know, there's all sorts of challenges involved with that. Um, and the, you really need a much bigger budget. Um, so that's, you know, that's really the, you know, to take an existing house, like a typical existing house that we would see around here and turn it into a passive house retrofit is going to take uh, a large budget. Uh, and it's, uh, we, like a full it's pretty, rehab pretty much. Uh, I mean, you're typically it's the only good candidates are full gut rehabs and even beyond, you know, uh, on top of that, you know, you're going to be adding exterior insulation. So mm. the house also needs to be a good candidate for removing siding uh, and, you know, things like that. So then you, you know, so you start having to, you know, get in either you're ripping off perfectly good siding or um, you're only doing this, you know, when uh, you have a project that needs new siding or needs new windows. Now, you know, when you do have those projects, then you're kind of, you know, you're, you know, more, uh, you know, to a certain extent, you're starting kind of from scratch and you, you know, just the, the opportunities open up. Uh, so if you're going to take the siding, okay, well, let's talk about adding exterior insulation. Let's talk about really doing, uh, you know, a well-designed and thought out air and water barrier for the walls and, uh, you know, we're going to put in uh, new windows probably at the same time. So let's get the best performing window that we can. Uh, but those kinds of projects don't come along that often. Uh, <laughs> and those kinds of budgets don't come along that often. Uh, so, you know, much more often it's, uh, you know, uh, clients who are, you know, looking to replace uh, heating and cooling systems Mm -hmm. And so we're working with them to, you know, often do really, you know, pretty big improvements on heating and cooling systems and, you know, trying to, where we can, make improvements on the enclosure. So, you know, tightening up the house to the extent that we can, adding insulation where it, you know, is uh, more economical to do so. Uh, which, you know, for us is more often in attics and basements and crawl spaces and uh, um, improving air tightness in attics, improving air tightness in basements and crawl spaces. Um, so those are kind of the things that we're more often doing on the retrofit side of things. And we're still able to, you know, we're still able to make some pretty big improvements from their existing conditions, but not, uh, not you know, getting things down to, you know, passive house levels of performance. Makes sense. Um, have you worked on any, I mean, I know passive house can theoretically be and has been case study wise applied to schools and, and commercial structures. Are you just in the residential space or have you worked on any, um, any civic projects or, or anything? We did a, a small um, passive house. Uh, it's like a library and music building on a Waldorf school campus in Charlottesville. Oh, cool. That was uh, like a decade ago. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, since then we haven't done any commercial work. Uh, but in general, yeah, we, we will do small commercial projects, uh, you know, whether passive house or otherwise. Is there any 
big difference or is it pretty much the same principles when, just applied to slightly different structure? It depends. Uh, definitely. Um, it depends on the occupancy, occupancy density. So uh, as you get into um, higher occupancy densities, like in a school or a small office building, uh, you have uh, much different ventilation demands. Uh, so you have very high ventilation or, you know, pretty high ventilation rates uh, during the day you know, or, or for special events when the building is occupied. More people, then, more CO2. That's right. Yep. Cool. Uh, and so very different mechanical equipment uh, and controls in order to be able to ramp up those fans and ramp down the fans when the demand isn't there to, uh, to save on energy. Are there technologies that you use in that case or, or even in single family, I guess, uh, for monitoring that and automating it at all? Or is that really just sort of a programmable feature and then you let it ride? Yeah. So the, um, in terms of CO2 controls in residential, there's not, there aren't many integrated systems to, mm -hmm. uh, to really ramp up and ramp down uh, ventilation airflow. Uh, I know um, the CERV from Build Equinox is one that can do it. Uh, cool. They definitely have some great uh, uh, indoor air quality controls and are really passionate about that. Uh, but in turn, and then I don't know. I know those newer units from Zender have CO2 monitoring. I don't know if they can, if the system can control um, CO2 with mm. airflow, uh, or if the, you know, if the if the system you know sends signals to the fan motors to increase or decrease speed based on CO2. Um, other you know other residential ERVs are not you know monitoring CO2, but you often you have the ability to. Uh, monitor with a third-party device of, you know, varying levels of quality and precision, and then send signals, either an on-off signal or perhaps a, a different speed signal to the motors. Uh, but it's, uh, you're kind of uh, cobbling it together. Uh, there's, yeah. you know, it's not integrated with yeah. the, uh, with the ERV itself, which is, you know, what we would more really like to see. Exactly. Um, maybe that'll come, come down the pike at some point here. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, oh yeah. Uh, have you ever heard of, uh, I think it's called arrow seal. Mm -hmm. Arrow um, seal and arrow barrier. An arrow barrier. That's yeah. It. So um, same, same parent company. Okay. And have arrow, you, have you used that at all? I read about it and, and not, I haven't talked to anybody that's no, actually used yet. it. We have a, we have a couple projects in the pipeline that might use arrow barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, the retrofit projects, uh, and it's a, you know, it's kind of a, it's retrofit with kind of substantial, you know, rehab or gut rehab. So it's a good opportunity uh, to use aero barrier. It's not a great process for, uh, or it's kind of a bad process for finished uh, houses uh, because there's, uh, it's kind of messy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, and that uh, basically it's, it's, sucks the, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's sort of sucking this material, this uh, sealing material, not sealing, sealing, but sealant. -E yeah, sealant <laughs> yeah. material, there you go, into the existing leak areas. Yeah, uh, technically they're pushing it through. So they actually use a blower door fan, like yeah. you know, the same kind of fan that we use, but they 
uh, pressurize the house to a very high pressure and they're releasing the sealant into the air so it becomes aerosolized and then it flows with the air through the leaks and builds up in those gaps and seals the holes up to about a half inch. Uh, the um, the you know, real world data I've seen from AeroBarrier and some third party uh, energy agencies, especially in Minnesota who've tested these, uh, the AeroBarrier system in uh, multifamily apartments, uh, the results are incredible. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it is potentially game changing technology. And in my opinion, the only big barrier out, outside of the kind of finished surfaces issue, the only big barrier is the cost and the kind of the amount of time it takes, which influences the cost right. to, you know, <laughs> to, to set it up and, uh, and actually run it. So um, it's, not, uh, it's not inexpensive, but it is very effective. Yeah. Time, time always equals money, right? <laughs> At the end of the day in building. Um, yep. How, you know, that's a good segue to how hard was it to start uh, a company you know, that sort of focuses on uh, energy efficiency and, and passive house design. Did you see the demand and start the company or did you have the vision and, you know, said, if we build it, uh, they will come? So uh, a little bit of both. Um, and so in, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia is a, it's on a, maybe per capita basis. You know, we're not a big town, but per capita, I would rate us uh, green building central for the entire mid-Atlantic, mid maybe for the entire East Coast. Wow. Uh, we have, you know, strong demand from clients uh, for, uh, you know, really great performing buildings. Uh, I think if you if you look up the uh, number of passive house consultants who are in Charlottesville, we we may even beat out a place like uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, for instance. <laughs> At uh, least per capita, yeah. Per capita, sure. yes, per capita. Um, so yeah, we have a, you know a great and growing uh, crew of passive house consultants, and really a mixture of architects and mechanical engineers and home performance consultants like us. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when I first started, uh, I got involved with the Earthcraft Virginia Green Building Program, hmm. and they needed another uh, HERS Raider technical advisor in the Charlottesville area. And so I had been kind of thinking about, this was back in 2007, uh, I was thinking about getting trained as a HERS Raider and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, launching this company. And when I talked with the folks at Earthcraft Virginia and, you know, they kind of encouraged me to, you know, go and do this and become, you know, a independent contractor within their organization. I was like, oh, okay, this, this sounds great. I'm, you know, I'm really uh, interested in this field. And if I do this, I've got kind of this built-in business that they're going to send my way uh, without any, you know, without any marketing. So it was, um, it was relatively, you know, low risk. Cool. And, uh, and also at the time, I didn't have a lot of uh, family pressure to, you know, you know, just be going gangbusters with sales. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to grow it a little bit organically, which as it turned out was really good because I started the company January 1st of 2008. And then we had uh, the recession in September of 2008. Um, and, uh, but for me, because I was you know, kind of growing slowly and organically, it didn't have a big impact on my business. And several of the you know, single family builders that we were working with uh, you know, fared pretty well through the recession um, because they were more focused on quality and performance. Nice. And you're also a college town. You got the University of Virginia there. Right. Um, so it, I, I imagine that provided some stability as far as like jobs and, and things like that. Right. Yeah. That I think period. overall uh, our local economy, economy, you know, fared better than, you know, many others across the country. Um, you went to school in Denver. Am I right? In Boulder. Boulder. University of Colorado okay. in Boulder. Cool. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also, that's w- the hub for, for Passive House US, isn't it? For, for no, they're, they're based in Chicago. They're based in Chicago. Okay. Yep. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn from, from living in and, and going to school in, uh, in Denver as far as in, differences I mean, Boulder, in climate zones? The, and like yeah. That. I mean, Boulder was or Boulder. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, much drier there. Um, while, at least while I was there, I was surprised that we, in Boulder in particular, we didn't get nearly as much snow as I was used to in Chicago. Okay. Uh, and even while I grew up in Chicago, we never had a big blizzard. Uh, like they had big blizzards in the 60s and they've had big blizzards in the 2000s, but never while I was living there. But anyway, uh, but Boulder, mm-hmm. you know, less snow, tons and tons of sun. Um, you know, uh, there was, um, you know, while I was there, I definitely, you know, saw some, you know, the first time in my life saw solar thermal panels and Hmm. some PV on some rooftops. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there was also a wind research center just outside, just, uh, south of Boulder. Um, so just kind of got some basic exposure to all of that. And uh, I was also a bicycle racer out there. And I, I cool. tend to think that folks who are into bikes, riding bikes and racing bikes uh, really tend to understand efficiency. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so I got you know, exposed to uh, energy efficiency or renewable energy just a tiny bit while I was out there, but it was never in my mind as a, as a career path until later on when I was in Virginia. Very cool. If I had, um, if I had to do it over again, I, I was in the business school at, at University of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, the engineering school was next door. If I, had to, <laughs> if I had to go back in time, I would probably have been better off in the engineering school. Yes, uh, engineering is definitely uh, on all levels in, um, in demand, you know, and, and we'll, yeah. it seems we'll never go out of demand. It's, it's sort of an so. yeah. integral part of, of how we uh, create things and and grow as a society. Um, I, I love that you mentioned the the biking thing because I I biked a lot basically in college. I bought an old bike and fixed it up and and started biking around in Boston, um, which didn't have bike lane. No 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 places had bike lanes <laughs> back then. Um, you know you'd kind of go on the sidewalk if you could, but mm-hmm. you know a lot of times you wouldn't. And then I also uh, I learned to sail when I was about ten years old. And that's still to this day is like one of my favorite things. I just got, we were just up at at my lake house 
um, for about a week and uh, I went sailing every morning and you know, you do have the times when the wind just kind of cuts out and you're stuck, you know, 50, 50 feet out from the dock and you got to jump in and, and pull the boat the rest of the way. But um, yeah, there's something really beautiful about being able to move, uh, you know, based on just sort of natural renewable, whether it's wind or your own power. Um, yeah. it, it does. It feels, it feels like you're connected to, to the earth in a, a way that's different than being in a car or being in a very motor, different motorboat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, what are some, I mean, we talked about the aero barrier, aero seal thing, but uh, are there any other technologies or products, materials? Um, how important are materials in, in passive house and, and how focused are you on like low VOC and, and eco-friendly uh, materials when you're building? Yeah, I mean, low VOC, um, you know, low VOC paints and sealants are relatively easy to come by in construction materials nowadays. Um, there's, I don't know, some indoor air quality researchers uh, are a little skeptical of the of the benefit, um, hmm. and th that they that there might be, you know, other other things off-gassing or combining from uh, from these different chemicals that uh, different companies are using that are you know maybe as bad or maybe even worse or will wind up being worse. Um, and, uh, and so there's there's actually some indoor air quality researchers that would prefer a for instance a, a high VOC paint and just ventilate the heck out of the room that you're painting. Don't go in there until it's all uh, off-gassed and then and then you're good after that. Interesting. Um, that's the first time so I'd heard that's, that. That's, that's yeah. not, I mean, that's not my approach, but it's, it's something that I'm, you know, pay attention to um, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, what indoor air quality researchers are looking at. Um, you know, we're, you know, definitely focused on indoor air quality, uh, on the energy front. Uh, when we can, you know, trying to use lower embodied energy materials, mm -hmm. um, which for us is a lot of, you know, most of our construction is wood, um, wood, cellulose insulation, um, things like that. So you're using, you're losing a lot of natural products. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. And is that part of the, I mean, is that just your business specifically or is that part of the uh, passive house mandate uh it's not part uh you know low embodied energy materials is not part of the performance standard for passive house okay. uh, but it's definitely you know part of all of the trainings that i've seen hmm. um you know because you know we're looking at it from uh an energy and uh emitted uh carbon or carbon equivalents standpoint uh into the atmosphere and uh, although, you know, operational energy over the lifetime of a building is usually, you know, where you want to start, once you have a very efficient building, you also really need to be looking at the uh, embodied energy or embodied carbon. And certainly if you're, if you have a kind of a really, um, uh, which, you know, to a certain extent we should have a 
really clear focus on the next 20 or 30 years in construction, right. uh, we need to maybe think about, okay, using very low embodied carbon materials, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, you know, over the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I, I attended, uh, there was a carbon reset um, event that was put on by Architecture 2030 um, this past week. And uh, it was super fascinating because mm -hmm. he, Ed Masria, who's the, who's the gentleman who, who runs that organization, um, you know, he, he, he laid it down. He was like, you know, if everybody could cut embodied carbon by 50%, you know, we would achieve our goal. And that's, you know, by, of, of lowering that or of avoiding that additional 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that was really cool to hear because you tend to think a lot of times, I think, I think people that aren't in the building industry um, tend to think that they're, we have to do everything. We have to, you know, go from zero to a hundred um, or a hundred to zero <laughs> in the HERS index. Um, but really it's about making, uh, you know, changes, across the board. It's not about one person having a net zero house. It's about everybody collectively or the industry uh, making changes in the way they, they view products and the way they make products so that we can just, you know, take a, take a chunk out of it. Um, and then we can at least get on the right track. Right. Um, and then I think we can all agree that those, those little movements forward are, are making some significant progress. And if we see that progress, then it, it'll be, you know, it's like if you're trying to uh, lose weight, right? You know, you're not gonna lose 10 pounds in a week. You gotta mm -hmm. lose the one pound first. And then you, the next week you lose the second pound and you know, slowly but surely. And so that was really encouraging for me um, to hear. And, and, and it seems doable when you put it like that, like, oh, if we just across the industry cut it by 50%, then you know we'd be we'd be lowering our global carbon, or at least in America, we'd be lowering our carbon by 25% because buildings take up, you know, it's just like 50% of, of carbon emissions comes from yeah, operation and, are, and building of buildings. Yeah, so um, yeah, so you know, it's not that you have to go all the way. You can make these smaller changes and really have, you know, collectively a big impact. Um, anything you want to kind of, that was my little, uh, that was my yeah, little I preaching the, moment. Yeah. The it's, it's always difficult though. Cause sometimes you have, um, especially when you're dealing with big projects, um, you know, it's one thing for, you know, one house that's being renovated, uh, you know, maybe the, you know, you can't get as much of an improvement in performance as you would like. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, each time, you know, each time practitioners touch a project, the, you know, the opportunity for, you know, making a big change often goes away for sometimes a decade or two decades. And, and so it's, uh, especially when you're dealing with big, big projects, you know, big, you know, multifamily renovations or, um, there aren't too many, you know, whole neighborhood renovations, but yeah, I'm thinking it's, you know, especially, you know, bigger buildings um, that are, that have, you know, longer uh, life renovation life cycles. Yeah. Um, it's important to really, you know, get as much out of them 
as you can uh, because they're gonna, you know, whatever whatever changes you make are going to be locked in for you know for a while. Um, what's available to the average homeowner as far as tax credits? Um, you know, ways to you know if somebody's on the fence and they're saying, eh, I don't know the cost, maybe you know this, that, and the other thing. What what are what are some of the the ways that you reel them in um, with help? Um, Mostly financial. in terms of, uh, not so much in terms of financial, certainly not in Virginia. No, um, no we, most of the projects that we work on, uh, and at least in terms of single family, have little to zero incentives. Uh, Interesting. In terms and yet of, you're still the leader. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, and you know, because, you know, clients actually, they want a more comfortable house, a house with better indoor air quality and uh, and lower energy bills. They like mm-hmm. um, they like all of those things. Uh, Health, and, comfort, and some money. of them, yeah. Mm. And so for some people, it's also they just want something that kicks ass. You know, they want <laughs> you know people all the time buy you know a really nice car, whatever that means to them. Uh, and there's some people who will do the same thing with houses or mechanical equipment. They you know they want the best. We do have a lot of work in a really solid uh, affordable ho- multifamily affordable housing incentive program okay. in Virginia through uh, the low income housing tax credit program. Uh, so we've been doing work in that program uh, for you know since we started a lot of it through uh, Viridians in the Earthcraft Virginia program. Um, but so that that uh, tax credit program uh, you know provides. Uh, equity financing for affordable housing projects. So it makes the projects affordable and gets developers, uh, you know, over the hurdle where they can, uh, you know, gives them enough money to really be able to build the project and keep it affordable for like 15 years. And, you know, in the entire time that I've been, you know, working in this industry, uh, energy efficiency has been incentivized in Virginia. Uh, and recently, uh, as of uh, two years ago, there are additional incentives uh, where now the uh, Passive House and the Department of Energy Zero Energy Ready Program are additionally incentivized for builders or for uh, multifamily property developers. So Very if cool. they certify uh, uh, Passive House and actually get the certification, they are they can the next project that they submit an application for tax credit financing, uh, they get bonus points on their application. The important thing to know here is that uh, the tax credit application process is competitive. So in Virginia, something like less than half of projects get awarded financing. I think in Pennsylvania, it's only about a quarter of projects get awarded financing. So the developers are always looking for, you know, how can they, you know, make their projects better, uh, which depends on geography and certainly lower rents makes them more competitive. And then there's other things around energy efficiency and uh, certain amenities that they can provide to, uh, to their tenants. But yeah, I mean, if they have to stand out, then that's a that's a great that's right. way to do it. Yeah, and, and so energy market. efficiency is one of them. Yeah, and that's so awesome. that's that is available now, uh, or and has been in Virginia, and so that's been that's the one uh, place where there actually has been you know significant uh, financial incentives for energy efficiency in in the state. Be nice to see that applied to market rate multifamily as well. I mean. Yeah, that's uh, that. 
we are going to have some new programs. So um, we have some new uh, legislation at the state level. Uh, and uh, so we have some new energy efficiency programs uh, because of that, that are in the works. Uh, so there will be uh, incentives for both uh, single family and multifamily homes and commercial buildings uh, to actually get some uh, rebate money especially through Dominion Energy, which is our, the, the largest uh, electricity utility in the state. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, anything else that's kind of like, you know, on the, on the edge, on the forefront, things coming down the pike? Like, I mean, for um, us, the, in terms of existing homes, the, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that we're pushing for um, in terms of existing homes is electrification. Nice. Um, so electrify everything. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Hashtag and electrify everything. Yeah, that's right. So in uh, in homes, that's uh, especially in Virginia, it's usually it's relatively straightforward. So we're talking about uh, switching from gas furnaces or propane furnaces or boilers, switching those over to heat pumps, going from uh, you know fossil fuel gas uh, water heaters to uh, electric, especially heat pump, uh, electric heat pump water heaters, and then uh, cooking uh, from gas to electric. And in Virginia, where we already have, a, you know, especially in the more rural areas of Virginia, we already have tons of all electric houses. So it's not something that's new in yeah. Virginia or, or anywhere in the southeast. There's, thou, you know, there's millions of all electric houses already. So it's a lot of uh, taking houses that are in the more urban areas that have that are on a, a natural gas distribution network and uh and getting them off of natural gas uh and into heat pumps um we have a you know in virginia we have a grid that's getting cleaner uh very quickly and we now have a state mandate to have uh, a uh, zero carbon in energy territory, which is 75 or 80% of the, of the state's uh, electricity. Cool. And then uh, the other utility by 2050. So, um, so we have uh, good goals there and now we just need to get more legislation that moves us toward a uh, zero carbon economy, not just electrical grid. Uh, so that's yeah. where that's where you know we're 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 taking good steps, but that's where we need to go. Uh, we do not have a strong uh, statewide electrification program or utility-wide electrification program at this point. Uh, I know there are some, you know, California, California New York are kind of, ones, yeah. and New York are they're kind of competing uh, for mm -hmm. the, the the title of uh, leaders on uh, electrification uh, and. I'd really definitely like us to, uh, you know, to get there. Uh, and it's not, uh, it's really not that difficult. Uh, and it's not uh, terribly expensive either, especially when you're doing it at a normal equipment replacement time. Right. So we're, you know, we have, you know, several projects that we've done over the past 18 months and several more in the pipeline where we're dealing with you know, 15, 20 year old furnaces and air conditioners and water heaters and so on that it's time for a replacement. The owners are thinking about replacement and we're going to replace it with a high efficiency heat pump or a heat pump water heater. And we're gonna do typically some 
building enclosure improvements at the same time to help make mm -hmm. everything work together. Um, but the kind of the upfront cost is not that different than if they had just put in uh, 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 inexpensive gas furnace and new air conditioner. So we're not, uh, uh, at least in Virginia, it's not a big uh, difference in cost to, uh, to the homeowners. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that catches people uh, off guard a little bit is that idea that you're not actually, if you're, if you're talking about a, a heat pump um, uh, for, for heating and for cooling, is that's, that's the key, is that it's for heating and cooling. Right. Um, and <clears throat> so you're not comparing your electric heat pump to your gas furnace. You're comparing your electric heat pump to your gas furnace plus your air conditioning. And right, when you right. do that cost delta, I think in a lot of cases at this point, you're actually spending less, um, you know, or about the same as you said, you know, but in some cases, maybe even less. In terms of operating costs, definitely less. Right. Uh, in terms of like actual installation costs, it's, it's usually about the same or maybe slightly more on our end. Okay. The but that's also, that's, you know, uh, we're often doing some ductwork improvements, indoor air quality improvements, and things like that. So, it's not uh, it's not apples to apples. Uh, right. At the same time, we're <laughs> we're improving comfort. We're delivering uh, you know a right size system that you know ramps the heating and cooling output up and down as needed based on the indoor and outdoor conditions. Uh, usually, it, the the systems are much quieter, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, indoors and outdoors, uh, which uh, is a big selling point. And then we also have the the operating cost differences as well. Uh, and and then we you know the the benefit you know the carbon benefits you know kind of accrue to society, um, but those are uh, quite significant uh, yeah. with our current grid. And then you know once you electrify all of your electrical appliances get cleaner every year as the utility adds uh, wind and solar, as uh, you know, other house, you know, households add their own uh, solar on their rooftops or uh, things like that. So that's the, that's the great thing about uh, the um, cleaning up the electrical grid is that, you know, your, your stuff actually gets cleaner without you having to do anything about it <laughs> once you install it. Yeah. And, and if you're talking about a, a home that's got a negative HERS rating or, you know, a positive energy output mm -hmm. um, annually, then, then you start to get into the idea of, you know, smart grids and, and connecting, you know, sort of community solar and connecting homes to the point where, you know, maybe we're not even relying on energy companies as much anymore and we're, we're almost sort of insulating ourselves to, to some degree from some of those infrastructural issues that, that can happen. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. If you have, um, uh, if you have solar that can, you know, either island, you have an inverter or a semi-islanding inverter so you can get some of the solar capacity while the sun is shining and at least, you know, keep your refrigerator going and your computers and cell phones charged uh, mm -hmm. during the day. Uh, then kind of going from there, thinking about small battery backups uh, or we have uh, coming online, we have bi-directional uh, car charging equipment. Yeah where you can uh, actually, instead of having a home battery system, you can use an electric vehicle that's going to have typically a much larger 
battery that's uh, you know sitting in your driveway or sitting in your garage uh, and use that for backup uh, and or you know use it uh, and get paid for it when the grid really needs it on really hot days or really cold days and if uh, they're willing to give enough money to <laughs> buy you know 10 or 20 percent of your car battery you can sell them that energy for a little while and then charge it back up uh, later on when it's less expensive. The future is looking bright. Yeah. <laughs> when you look a, at it that just, way. I yeah, think. it is. Um, the, the pace is simultaneously um, snail-like and incredibly fast compared to history. Uh, you know, yeah. compared to the history of energy changes, the, the change that's happening right now uh, uh, is happening really fast. And for practitioners, it's also so slow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. It's just like, you know, everybody's just, you know, we're all very much, we've been ready for this. Uh, you know, it's, for some people, this has been, you know, a dream since the, you know, mid to late 70s. Uh, for you know, for some of my mentors who've been working in this field uh, since then, uh, and uh, so, uh, but now things are really, really moving in the right direction. We just have to, you know, double, that, that double way, yeah. and triple the speed of deployment of uh, renewable energy and uh, turning over existing buildings, or just not so not so much turning over existing buildings, but capturing the potential for renovations when buildings get renovated, when furnaces are replaced. No more furnaces, they all have to be heat pumps. Uh, you yeah. know, when, when a gut rehab happens, make it a really good high performance gut rehab. <laughs> you know, don't just make it an aesthetic gut rehab. You know, do, all, do everything that you can, you know, when you can do it and don't miss, you know, we can't, we can't afford to miss, you know, a bunch of opportunities like we've done over the past 30 years. Well, I can't imagine a better place to kind of wrap up. You, you, you said it right there. Um, do you, thank you, John. Um, thank you. Do you want to plug um, through your you know, website or email or anything out there that, uh, you know, if anybody wants to contact you in the Charlottesville area or, um, you know, is looking for your expertise anywhere else in the country as well? Yeah, uh, we do most of our work in Central Virginia, in Charlottesville and the Richmond, Virginia markets. Uh, on the web, we're at think-little.com. So don't think big, think little. <laughs> That's taken from a Wendell Berry essay from the nice. uh, late 1960s. And then our uh, contracting company uh, with the HVAC specialty is Comparetto Comfort Solutions. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook. And you can find me on, uh, on Twitter, at John Semelhack. And um, if you're in really interested in Electrify Everything, there's a great uh, Facebook group called Electrify Everything, where there's uh, uh, excellent resources for homeowners and business, businesses, as well as practitioners. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. And it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. Yeah. Thank you, John. 